Hello and welcome to the Iris Murdoch podcast, our second podcast. And today we are focusing on Murdoch land. We're focusing on the characters, the locations, the general ideas and themes that Iris brings out in her novels. And I've got three guests who have in various ways worked on Murdoch land and have been plugged into all 26 novels. So it's going to be an exciting and interesting podcast with some really diverse ideas coming through and also ways of looking and thinking about Murdoch's novels. Joining me is our Professor Anne Rowe, um, who you will all know from um, the first podcast. Um, Anne is visiting professor at the University of Chichester and is well known as one of the world's leading experts on Murdoch with works such as Iris Murdoch on the Visual Arts, Iris Murdoch in the Writers and Their Work series for Liverpool University Press, many collected editions for um, uh, Palgrave and also the Iris Murdoch Living on Paper um, letters collection along with Iris Murdoch Literary Life. Welcome Anne, it's good to have you back again. Good to be here. Uh, we also have, um, and Anne is, Anne is coming in from Kingston, obviously we're recording remotely. Uh, we also have Chris Boddington. Uh, Chris is at the moment in southwest France. Hello Chris. Hello there. Hi. Um, Chris, um, has been working on Iris Murdoch for quite some time. He's um, he's an, a former lawyer, he's, and he's um, now retired. He's made a serious study of Iris Murdoch and her work. In particular, he's worked on the evolution and completion of Iris Murdoch's People, which is an A to Z book, which is the first comprehensive reference book of its kind to include all her published fiction and all nine plays. Um, and, it, and it grew out of, of a real love of, um, of Murdoch's work, of quite obviously. And as part of the research project, he completed his MA by research at Kingston with Anne. Um, so um, Anne, in, in some regards, has had a bit of a hand in this as well. Uh, also joining me today, our final guest is uh, James Jeffries, who's a creative technologist at the moment, is in Sheffield. Hello, James. Hello. Hi. And specialises in working with the untapped potential found in cultural data, bringing stories to life on the web and creating maps. And James has produced the wonderful irismurdoch.info if you don't know it uh, well worth um, getting that up on your screen if you can if you're listening on pc or mac um, have a, you can have a look at the website as we're going along through the podcast so he's worked with the bbc's research and development team on projects for the archers um, home front the civilizations documentary and at the moment he's um, working with um, the Imparenthesis team, um, which is a uh, philosophy project based at the universities of Durham and Liverpool, looking at um, the impacts and life of um, Iris Murdoch, but also her colleagues, Mary Midgley, Elizabeth Anscombe and Philippa Foote. Uh, so um, what we, we're going to start off with, um, with Anne. So Anne's going to talk to us about her work um, from a few years ago called Sacred Space Beloved City, which is, I think, was key to both um, Chris's work and also James's work. Yes. And, and um, yes, so and t tell us about that. And, and um, I know it's now available in paperback as well. So talk to us a little bit about that. Right. OK, well, I think the first thing I want to say about this book is that the idea for the whole thing was generated by my friend and colleague, uh, Cheryl Bove, an American Murdoch scholar. She had been busy for many years compiling, uh, compiling a glossary of Iris Murdoch's London and fearing that this was never going to see the light of day, uh, we decided to work together on this book, Sacred Space, Beloved City, Iris Murdoch's London, which was published in 2008 and then came out, as you say, um, in 2018. 
as a paperback book. So I thought I'd just like to, to entice maybe some of you to reading this book, because for me, Murdoch Land is London. Uh, she loved London. She spent so much of her life living in London, walking the streets, something of a flanners, um, in enjoying the city and relishing it. Uh, so we got together, put this book together with a foreword by Iris Murdoch's biographer, Peter J. Conradi, and an interview with John Bailey. And we've deci decided to um, direct it to six areas of London. So there's six chapters. First chapter is on the city, the architecture and the buildings. Now, who can forget Jake Donoghue walking through the city of London in Under the Net and coming across all those wonderful building, buildings that impact on him so deeply and so strongly and changes his life. So this chapter looks very much in detail at Under the Net. The second chapter is on sacred spaces and looks at the art galleries and museums and who can forget Dora Greenfield in The Bell falling to her knees in the National Gallery as she looks at Gainsborough's wonderful portrait of his two little daughters chasing a butterfly. The third chapter is just on one icon, one iconic building in London, uh, and this is entitled Shadows That Puzzle the Mind, and this is Bradley Pearson in The Black Prince, and he's living very close to the shadow of the post office tower. So it looks at the way that book acts as a moral symbol and appears throughout the book. Fourth chapter on the Peter Pan statue, Frampton statue donated by J.M. Barry uh, to Kensington Gardens. The main novel that we deal with here is Hilary Bird in A World Child. And as many of you will know, uh, illicitly meets um, the wife of his former colleague uh, by the Peter Pan statue in Kensington Gardens. And of course, as we know, Lady Kitty later drowns very oh, nearby. Yeah. The fifth chapter is on Whitehall and Westminster and all Murdoch's civil servants character, um, where she deals with um, neuroses, power drives. Uh, she didn't like civil servants very much, I don't think. She worked as a, <laughs> she worked as a civil servant herself, of course, uh, um, just after she left uh, Oxford. Um, her father was a civil servant, and I think many of the stories that he told her as a child uh, come through in this, in this chapter. Uh, and in her work and in her dealings with civil servants. Um, she was very put out after working all his life in the civil service when I don't think any of her father's colleagues turned up at his funeral. Maybe that's why she um, had something against them. The final chapter is entitled Sweet Thames Run Softly Till I End My Song. And that, of course, is deals with the way the River Thames runs through all the novels, dividing North London from South London and symbolically dividing the higher part of the human soul from the darker side of the soul. So those are the six chapters. Uh, there's illustrated walks at the end. How much use these are going to be now? Because we weren't allowed to update them when we had the paperback published. Uh, but anyway, everybody's got Google Maps, so it doesn't matter. They have, so and, I, and it's, it's good, actually, because you, you can use this as a guidebook. It's not just an academic book by any means, is it, Anne? Oh, absolutely. You know, but the, there's a whole section of illustrated walks, and the final fanfare at the end of the book is Cheryl's London Glossary, with which I had absolutely nothing to do and can take no credit for whatsoever. <laughs> so there we have it. Um, 
Sacred Space, Beloved City, Iris Murdoch's London. Yes, and that's with Cambridge, isn't Cambridge it? Scholars Press. It's Cambridge Scholars Press. Yeah, and I think it's just about. I think it's around twenty pounds. You can buy it in paperback direct from the website. Um, but it's worth mentioning, I think, at the that. I think London runs through almost all of the novels, doesn't it? They're, Absolutely all of yeah. them. Well, there's the, the Unicorn and... Of course, the, yeah. The Red, Red the Green, 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 yeah. Largely Irish novels. But I think the other 24, I can't think of one where London doesn't appear. Well, well... Chris, well, Chris, Chris, Chris may well, on that note, I think Chris might well be able to um, pick us up on this. Because, Chris, your A to Z, it, it's been a labour of love it, and it covers so much, doesn't it? Yes, it does. Just on just on London, <clears throat> of course, the Sandcastle and um, the uh, Philosopher's Pupil and other novels have have episodes or even centres which are outside London, but they do come back to London. I mean, both those both those two books uh, and the uh, have have episodes which are quite critical to the plot. Um, I came back to Murdoch. I'd read some of her books when uh, I was sort of about the time they came out when I was an uh, undergraduate and so on. But I came back to them in the mid 90s, like Jake coming back to London from Paris. And we turned on the afternoon play on the radio when we left over. And there was this Irishman roaming around London with an Alsatian. And of course, <laughs> it was Jake. <laughs> and Mr. Mars. And that for me was page one of my book, really. Um, that play led me to reread the half dozen old Irish Murdoch paperbacks still in our bookcase. Uh, I joined the Irish Murdoch Society. A friend told me about that. Um, I gave papers at literary conferences in Kingston and, of course, Chichester and, and at Louisville in Kentucky. Uh, and eventually I sought out Anne. Uh, we met at a conference at LSE, um, and I asked her what I would do if I wanted to write a doctorate. She said, you'd come and see me, so I did. <laughs> wise advice, I think, yeah. <laughs> yes, uh, I, I ended up doing a master's because I'm, I'm um, shall we say, a senior citizen, and I thought if I spend another three years doing a doctorate, I shan't have time to finish my book. So... We uh, did the Masters by Research, which I greatly enjoyed. Uh, it's called, what is it called? Precious Dead. And it's about Iris Murdoch and Frank Thompson, who was a very important figure in her life, particularly after his death in the war. Um, and, and it's a subject which I've given papers on as well. But getting back to my book, I read Under the Net, I read A Severed Head, The Italian Girl, The Bell, I think um, The Flight from the Enchanter, and probably one other that I forget which one it was now, but it was one of the early ones again. And I quickly discovered there were a lot more. And in those days, without the aid of Bookfinder and Amazon and all that stuff, I used to go to the, um, the, the Oxfam bookshop in the Portobello Road. And I could buy them there. Uh, a first first edition, second hand was about a tenner, and paperbacks were about a pound each. And I got about half of them there. And then in about 2000, Vintage started reproducing the entire series. And I bought those as they came out and, and oh. discovered there were, in fact, 27, of which in, in the end, I realized that the 27th was actually a short story, um, something special. 
I got four in Gatwick's North Terminal one day on my way back down <laughs> here, which was, you know, the fat ones, those were. You know, we're talking the, um, oh, I don't know. The late the, ones, Book and the Brotherhood. Those the ones. Good Apprentice and those ones. Yeah. So, you know, that was quite an addition to my baggage. Um, I, I sort of focused on the novels as stories, but then I got Gillian's wonderful collection, A Tiny Corner, and started realizing that there was more to Iris and that she'd written philosophy and all these things. Um, I found a copy of um, uh, The uh, the Life in a secondhand bookshop just around the corner from Iris's flat in Gloucester Road and so on. And so I sort of built up a habit of reading all about her, which took all my time. And then I noticed that some of the characters seemed to appear in more than one book. Um, I think the first one is a sort of hint at Hugo in The Bell as the medieval bell founder. Um, and I started wondering whether the novels were in fact connected, like, um, you know, a dance to the music of time or something. And so I started writing down all the names of all the people to see what happened. What I eventually discovered as... as uh, all the scholars will know, is that none of them actually appears twice. They're only referred to. So um, Adelaide and Will from Bruno's Dream are referred to as Charles's only happily married couple. Um, and um, they, never go to, they never go to Shruff End. They never appear. And likewise, Hugo. Now, Hugo is an interesting case because he is said to be derived from uh, one of Iris's friends, and the friend died about 20 or 30 years later, and Hugo comes back as having died in the philosopher's pupil, memorialising this friend who had died. So that was, you know, it was all sort of quite interesting in terms of the characters. And then I, I, I had the revelation, which really turned my, my list of names into an encyclopedia, which was if you look at what Iris says about her books, she's deeply influenced by people like Jane Austen. And I think Jane Austen is mentioned in 10. And Mr. Knightley is Thomas McCaskill's favourite character and so forth. So one sees people like that. And I thought, I can't write the book without including them. And so you put in Jane Austen and there's a reference to Mr. Knightley. So you put in Emma and it builds up. And then you discover, for example, that Plato and Shakespeare are mentioned in virtually every single book. Um, and, and so that, that side of the characters built up. And then the, um, the, the, the sort of the per peripheral characteristics, like what kind of car they drive. Um, Felix Meacham driving a very dark blue Mercedes, so cool, and for an army officer so soon after the war, really he's, makes him an interesting, striking character, not just a sort of regular brigadier type. Um, and the animals that come in, some people have cats or dogs or, or horses, quite a lot of horses, one parrot. Um, and so they all came in. And then um, the colour of the people is made divided by things like the songs they sang. So Charles Araby's aunt Estelle is a singer and her songs are so much part of her. There's not much physical description, uh, except I guess she's rather cute and might be sort of a red Indian under the skin. But it's 
the songs she sings, which make her alive. So they all came in as well. And um, then I started feeling I have to distinguish between the real and the fiction. So the fictitious characters, it just says Charles Araby, the sea, the sea. And then I, I write about him, which is mainly her own words or taken from. But somebody like um, Jane Austen, I put uh, eight, 19th century English author or something like that to indicate that she's she's real outside the novels. And, um, and, and this is a it, it's a real work of scholarship as well, isn't it, Chris? I mean, it, it the links that you make, the, the web. I mean, it's like, you know, it's like having Murdoch at the middle of this web and, and the, the links that she makes within and without her books. I mean, the um, Chris's book that you can um, you can pick it up on uh, on Amazon or, or directly from him stretches to well over 500 pages. There's the, the, the appendices contain eating and drinking, languages, animals, cars, all sorts of things, aren't they, Chris? I mean, it's it, it yeah. really is very, very comprehensive. And I haven't mentioned the places because, of course, as Anne says, most of them take place in. Uh, um, there are the two Irish ones, obviously, which don't, and, and some others. Um, I rather enjoyed the way she treated London, particularly in The Nice and the Good, which is a sort of. Um, down there in, in Devon, everything is sort of round and the right size. And you've got these four children and a dog who I see absolutely as. Um, uh, as the famous five and uh, their fathers daddy is in London doing the real stuff sorting out the murder mystery and the children are down there doing all sorts of things um, some of which perhaps they oughtn't to be doing and um, it, it's it's like it's like two worlds it's like the Shire uh, sort of in Trescom and then there's London which is the real world with her real novels and her real civil servants and, and and all the civil servants are in London and virtually everybody in London is a civil servant alive or dead so those those um, those links build up out of the story and then if you look at London just a little bit more specifically I think it's the last thing I'll say uh, you look at it a little more specifically there's, there's a very interesting idea uh, in the, under the net which is that anywhere west of the Earlscourt Road is contingent, which means to me, um, it's a philosophical term, and I think it means it, it, it depends on some other factor. It's not enough in itself. And yeah. so if, yeah. you look at, if you look at a place like Ealing, which is um, well to the west of Earlscourt Road, you get odd people from Ealing, like the, the, the black magic suicide Joseph Radice. Uh, and and if you compare Arnold with Bradley Pearson, Bradley Pearson, as you said, lives right in the centre. I mean, if you stick a pin in the map where the post office tower is, you're likely to hit him with the edges of it. Um, and Arnold, with his wife, lives in a good a suburban villa in a good class housing estate it, it couldn't be it couldn't make the point more vividly that Bradley is or would like to think of himself an intellectual um, urban elite type person and and Arnold is just a jobbing writer who lives in the suburbs and writes these dreadful trashy novels with crucifixes killing the bishop and that sort of thing so it, the places are so, so important and fundamental to what she's trying to do. 
Anyway, I think I probably said enough, and I think James. Well, we're, 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 we're going to uh, we, we will come back to so much of this. And I think your, your your comment about sticking pins in maps is absolutely apt to um, have a lovely segue to talk to James actually about um, his again a, a real labour of love. Iris Murdoch.info, isn't it, James? I mean, you spent so much time putting this together. And um, for those of you who haven't done so yet, please get online and just just click on map or click on explore and um, you'll see how James has actually mapped Iris's London onto um, onto an, an, you know, a topographical map. James, talk us through it. That's right. So f for me, I first came across Iris Murdoch back in in the mid 90s. So after after Jackson's Dilemma, her last novel had been published and I was down at a conference in London. And at the end of the conference, I got on a Piccadilly line train to go back to where I was staying. And I bumped into, well, literally, as the train set off, I bumped into the young woman standing next to me, who also I saw was at the same conference. And we started chatting. And uh, back in those days, I, I kind of was uh, uh, a bit taken by this, <laughs> by this young woman. And chatting to her, she was telling me about all sorts. But one of the things which struck me was she was saying that as part of her A-levels, she'd studied the bell. By Iris Murdoch, and she suggested that I thought I might find that interesting. I I hadn't done A level English, um, I so it, I'd not heard of Iris Murdoch before. But as I wanted to impress this person, I decided that maybe it was time I should read some Iris Murdoch. But when it came round to it, I was at uh, Heathrow Airport on the way to Budapest with a friend. The only Iris Murdoch book I could find was Message to the Planet. Uh, I picked it up at the airport and I took it with me to Budapest and I struggled at times, but I... I think I, we've all struggled with that at times. Well, as, as a first Iris Murdoch novel, for any, any people listening who are not sure where to start, I wouldn't recommend it as the place to start, but it worked for me and the world that, that Iris created just just captured me. And I just found the, the, the mystery in it and uh, the just gave me such a hunger for reading more of her novels. So I, I did the thing I usually do when I find someone that I like. I then start, as Chris was saying, start searching around for for other um, books that she'd written and slowly but surely made my way through through all of them. Um, but it, it just really struck me, you know, this it's the books that I've gone back to reread time and time again. And the story about info really kind of, that part of it started in 2015 when I was I'd been in London for some meetings and I had a bit of spare time before the train went home and I'd been reading uh, a word child which we've already mentioned and in a word child uh, Hilary Bird often finds himself traveling around the what was the inner circle line on the London Underground which is now just the circle line uh, and there used to be two public bars at uh, two of the stations one at Liverpool Street and one at Sloan Square, where you could stand on the on the station platform and and sup your pint or whatever you would uh, be wanting to drink. And so I thought, whilst I had that little bit of time, I'd just nip to Liverpool Street and see if I could find where the where the uh, where the bar was. <laughs> and so I just zoomed around, and it's it's now a, a convenience little convenience shop on the platform. But then it just really got me thinking, where you know. When I'm in London, where is my nearest Iris Murdoch pub? Because there are so many of them mentioned. Where would I start? Where would I find out? And I, I didn't really know where to start. But by then I'd started following the Iris Murdoch Twitter account. So I kind of thought, if anyone knows, 
the Irish Murdoch Twitter account would know. I didn't know anything. It's always a short bit. Oh, yeah. I didn't know anything about the Irish Murdoch Society. I didn't know about the journal. I didn't know about the conferences, but I did know about Twitter. So I tweeted uh, the account and uh, and got in touch with with Pamela, who runs the Twitter uh, account for Irish Murdoch. And from there, she recommended uh, Anne's book and uh, Cheryl's book, Sacred Space, Beloved City. So I got hold of that and then found at the end the incredible glossary, which Anne has already mentioned, which Cheryl put together. I thought, this is what I want. It's got all the London locations. It's got the pubs. It's got the books. This is what I need. Um, I was put in touch with Anne via uh, Pamela, who then passed me on to Cheryl. And I asked whether it'd be possible to get hold of the glossary in digital format. And it, it took a while to get it sorted out. But in the end, I got it as a, as a PDF. And being a technologist, it meant I could then extract all the goodness out of it all the, the locations and the descriptions, put it in a database, and that was the start of what became irismodart.info. So getting all those London places and putting them on a map and allowing you to click on them. But then once I'd done that, it was what's next. And I'd been working, as you mentioned in the introduction, Miles, I'd been working on a project for the uh, Archers, which was sadly never saw the light of day. But it was mapping Ambridge, which is where the arches is set, but also the characters and family trees and things. And I thought, well, once I've got the Irish Middle locations, I should start looking at the characters. I obviously didn't know, of course, at this time that this was Chris's labour of love as well. So I wasn't too sure where to go next. But then, of course, I found that Cheryl had also written um, a character index. So uh, back in 1986, uh, it was published a character index and guide to the fiction of Iris Murdoch. And although it was only up to The Good Apprentice, um, it was a brilliant resource because, not quite like Chris's book, because it's a, I think it's probably has less information in there, but what it did do, it gave me a starting point to think, actually, here's what the characters describe. The only problem was I had it actually in book format, and to do anything clever with it, I needed it in digital format. So, being published in 1986, there's no PDF of it or ebook of it or anything like that. So I managed to get it sent off to get it digitized. So someone scanned in all the pages for me, which was uh, which was brilliant because it then meant I had that. It was a bit messy, but I managed to clean it up, get those imported, and it then meant that I had in my database those locations and the characters and various objects and things. The final bit I really needed for the site, though, was it needed some design. Uh, and so what you see now when you go to irismoo.info is the design which a good friend of mine, who was at that time a freelance designer, Dean Vipond, he came up with the design for it. And then my friend Richard Jones helped me actually do the implementation. Uh, and then you have what you see now when you go to irismoo.info, you see... Uh, they can see a list of books and the characters and the locations. And it was publicly launched at the Iris Murdoch Conference in 2017 down in Chichester. Uh, and there's been a few bits and bobs I've done since then. It's very much a side project for me rather than being the total. I, I wish I could spend more time on it. But um, as it's just labour of love, it's something that I do when I get chance, really. But I think the sure, main yeah. change, the main change since then was... I'm not sure whether we mentioned it at the beginning, but the Sacred Space Beloved City has some fantastic illustrations. So 
now if you go to irismiddle.info, some of the locations will include Paul's illustrations on there. Uh, so if you look like the Albert Memorial, for example, and they look absolutely brilliant. I think they really make a, a real difference to it. So it's kind of still developing. There's more I want to do. Um, we've also now got Message to the Plants and the Book and the Brotherhood are in there with the, the index from, from Cheryl. Uh, the Green Knight isn't as yet. But I've got plenty more ideas for the future. And we'll see where we go from here, really. Yeah. And, and looking at the kind of the, the bird's eye topographical view, it's amazing, isn't it, to see how she's when Iris is writing, she's got the map of London in her brain. She knows exactly where she wants to place her characters and, and how they're developing. And I'm sure James, not you know, James has, has um, perceived this, obviously, but Anne and Chris, she must have seen this as well. Do you know, she she walked the streets. I mean, she was very familiar with all the streets. I had an, an email from someone in Australia about 10 years ago or more. And uh, she said that in the 1960s, she had walked past a woman in Kensington who was staring at her. And her mother had said to her, do you know who that was? That was Iris Murdoch. And she'd remembered that uh, for, 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 you know, about 20 years or more. Wow. And I think it gives you an idea of the penetrating gaze that she put on the surroundings as she actually lived and worked in London. She had a flat in London from about 1960, right up until she died. Uh, and, and when she was there, I mean, this um, walking around the streets and looking and going into the pubs and looking at the buildings. I mean, that was images that she carried in her mind, I think, as she was writing the books. She was calling these up from her memory and her imagination and transforming them in the novels. And, and from her childhood as well. I was just gonna say, can I give you a couple of lines from Under the Net? When Jake and Hugo escape from the hospital, Jake is following Hugo, who is trying to hit away from him. And this is a part of London where I live and where I know these streets very well. Here it goes. He began walking very fast and turned down Camden Hill Road. I followed him at my ordinary pace. He drew ahead. I walked after him along the road. He turned into Sheffield Terrace. And when I turned the corner, he was about 30 yards ahead. He looked back and saw me and quickened his pace. He turned into Haunton Street. I followed at the same pace and saw him in the distance, turning into Gloucester Walk. When I got to the corner of Gloucester Walk, he had disappeared. And I note that in another four turns, he would have actually arrived at Murdoch's flat in Cornwall Gardens. So we may assume that this is a walk that she had literally done herself. Oh, she would have. Yeah. I tell you, um, I can, uh, there's, there's, do you remember where Jake in Under the Net is looking for Hugo and they stop at every pub on mm. <laughs> yes, where they think he's going yeah. to be? And I can give you the list of the pubs. There are no fewer than eight pubs that they, they stop at. Um, yeah. There was the Viaduct Tavern just past St. Sepulchre, the Magpie and Stump, just across the road from the Old Bailey. The George, with its ecclesiastic barman. Um, an unidentified Younger's house on the hill. Shorts in St Paul's churchyard. A Hennecke's house in Freeman's Court. The Old Tavern in Watland Street. And the Skinner's Arms at the junction of Cannon Street and Queen Victoria Street. She'd been in every single one of those pubs. And she told us who <laughs> the brewers are in some of them. Uh, yes. One Which... of them is up Friary Muke's house, I remember. Well, it's yeah. very important as well, because, of course, she had a collection of beer mats, didn't she? So she, did. she needed to know which brewers were from where and 
uh, and how that all fitted together. I did try some of those, obviously some of the pubs now, and some of the locations now uh, don't exist anymore due to developments and things like that, especially in the sort of city area. I did spend some time trying to identify where some of those were uh, and it is, a, it is a fascinating rabbit hole. There is plenty of information on the internet about where old London pubs were with photos and things. Uh, but really that's for that's for an, another time when I've got more time to kind of dig into it further. Um, and then you can trace a little bit more about some of the routes and some of those locations. And of course she worked there as well. She worked in London. She taught at the Royal College of Art for several years and and, and, and that finds its way into the into the novels too, doesn't it? Mm. But that again is back in Kensington. Uh, you know that well, that was very much our home base. Yes. If you look, if you look at the characters, you'll find the most establishment sort of civil servants. People like Rup, um, Rupert is. It, you go to the nice and the good. You go to um, the accidental man. Uh, you go to a fairly honourable defeat, and you look at the civil servants there. You go north of the park and you find people like Hilary Bird who are not quite, uh, you know, not quite OK, really. And you go down to the river and you find the rich and famous. Uh, you, you, you go down to Chelsea and you'll find a different collection of people, people like um, Jockling living in a very smart house indeed. And that sort of gradient from Notting Hill down to the river is really quite marked. Mm. And, we, and we see that in... Um perhaps in, in most vivid detail in um, a sacred and profane love machine, I would say, with the, with the crossing of the river. Mm. 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 The two women, the wife and the mistress. Exactly, yes. The yeah. mistress down in Putney is definitely on the wrong side of the track. <laughs> <laughs> but I think that, com that, that comes through a lot of the novels as well, doesn't it? You know, as, as you've been mentioning, you know, the, the different areas give us different kind of characterizations. The, the, you know, it's not just London as a, as a homogenous entity, but different areas, different, you know, the different villages of London all, all have different characteristics. And these are actually built into the separate characters as well. To do with the philosophical idea, um, what we try to do in Sacred Space is look at the ways these landmarks and these buildings are absorbed into her moral philosophy and how she uses them not just as symbols of actual places, but as symbols about what's going on in the inner life of the characters. So mm. you're... Mm subliminally as you're looking at all these um different parts of london and the icons and the buildings and the pubs and the churches i mean she's brilliant on churches that you're actually actually absorbing something about the inner life you're, you're feeling what these characters are feeling uh, mm. and she's talking about this uh, pull in two directions all the time we're talking about north london south london high eros low eros the desire to be good, the spiritual desire, the desire for God and all things good that she sees in everybody, but also the Freudian aspect, that idea that we are constantly being tempted by the profane, the sacred and the profane. Mm. So all these things have meanings that I think she wanted us to enjoy London and celebrate London, but also she wanted her readers to subliminally uh, absorb something about what was going on in the characters' minds, often the torture and the divisions and the soul-searching that goes on in there. So they're hugely complicated symbols uh, and icons that are speaking. I mean, Jake, for example, the, this, the um, monument to the fire of London, 
and he's trying to rebuild his life and he learns something about a collective memory and he's helped to be healed and to build his life. But it just exists in the novel simply as he walks past and looks at the monument to the fire of London. So it's working on the character and it's working on the readers as well who are subliminally learning something about the traditions and the monuments in London. Wonderful. I mean, I can't think of another um, 20th century writer who was doing something so wonderful and interesting. I, I liked in, again, back to Under the Net, which is, it's such a good book. We do keep coming back to it, don't we? Um, what's his friend called? Uh, Dave Gelman. Yeah. Now, Dave Gelman. Okay. Dave Gelman lives on the wrong side of Earlscourt Road. And he is a real philosopher. He describes uh, by Jake as a real philosopher. And to me, he sort of symbolizes Wittgenstein, who is a subtext in that book. And Jake's visit to him outside of the, the real world of London into the contingent world of London seems to me to be paralleled to Iris's um, journey outside of Oxford into Cambridge, where she is briefly almost a student of Wittgenstein. Um, and then she comes back in again from, goes out from Somerville and comes back in again from St. Anne's. And I, I, I somehow see her head as seeing Gelman as that journey to Wittgenstein and back. Yes, that's a, that absolutely, certainly a, a strong part of the novel, um, play, playing around with these philosophical ideas. It's interesting as well that we, because quite often we think about Iris as um, primarily an Oxford type, don't we? And, and certainly in the sort of the public consciousness as an Oxford don. But Anne, I think there's something to be said that actually she really rather didn't like Oxford, certainly later in her life. She was a different person. There's a wonderful line in um, David Morgan's book, uh, With Love and Rage. David Morgan was her student when she was at the Royal College of Art and they became great friends for the rest of, of her life. And he recalls that she became a different person when she stepped on the train at Paddington, she changed. Uh, and I think London gave her the opportunity to explore a different aspect of herself, something that she was not prepared to give up. John Bailey was not a London man. Mm. And he said that was Iris's thing, not his. So uh, Oxford was the serious philosophical life. It was the life with her husband. It was the life with her students and her work. And then that changed, I think, in the, in the 1960s, when she came to spend more time in London because she was teaching in London. And London was where she explored this other side of herself, it's where she met her lovers, Elias Canetti, Bridget Brophy, and others. And this darker side, the Freudian side, uh, that she loved, relished, uh, feared a little bit also, I think. So these two aspects of her life were equally important to her, but absolutely necessary, I think, to each other. And James, do you think that um, in the development of this um, in this project, the the, the, um, the website rsml.info, you you got that sense as well that actually she was far more plugged into the locations in, in London and to her love of London than she ever was of Oxford. Yes, I think so, and I think that the. The, the sheer quantity of London locations that are real places that you can go to now and you can see the things that she did, you can walk in her footsteps. You, you can just tell that the, 
it just means that so much is rooted within London and those different places and very much as as Chris and Anna both said there are different divides that then come out and when you look at the, the different locations on there there's that it's it's all over the place and I think that the um when you look at the the different places involved it's I guess what as Anne was saying that whole thing about being a different person when she got on the train it just comes to life the the, the London locations and I think that for me um being able to walk in those footsteps is is just a fantastic thing to be able to do and I think being able to for me looking on the map and thinking actually I'm just around the corner I, and this is a book I've not read for a long time I just think I've I'm just around the corner from I don't know the, the Peter Pan statue I'm just going to nip over and have a look and being able to have that to hand uh is for me is a wonderful thing to be able to do mm. I, I just wonder as well I wonder what Anne and, and everybody's thoughts are about uh, in terms of the the river as well, obviously the the Thames kind of wiggles its way past Oxford in its own way, but is obviously very central in London. I've just been, well, I'm in the middle of rereading Bruno's Dream, and of course there's a, a fantastic scene in the well, a whole chapter as the river is rising towards the end of the novel, and there are flood warnings, and in the end the river overwhelms the basement of the house at, at Stadium Street. Uh, and Adelaide and Bruno are there, and no one else is there at the time. I just wonder whether um, ha- what people think about the the role of the river as well as the Thames within her novels and and within that space. It's it's actually very progressive because she starts uh, with Jake and his mates going swimming in the river in a very sort of peaceable sort of way, just drifting about in the dark while totally pissed out of their brains. And then you, it gets progressively darker. And when you get to Bruno's dream, apart from threatening his life, it does actually take the life of one young woman who jumps in to save someone else. Um, and it also uh, is the scene of the, of the duel um, where they actually fire pistols at each other. To, um, Hillary and, and the wretched Kitty, who in, in a completely un predicted accident get pushed into the river by her husband and drowns you know it, it it's quite a progression the bit that i forgot about with the with the duel is that at the end Danby jumps in the river and, and swims off yes uh, under battersea bridge and 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 that's that's the end of him in that scene and uh, I, I completely forgotten about that i'm not sure i'd want to do that now no i think that's a sort of don't try this at home so definitely walk the roads but maybe not go for Probably don't swim in the Thames. Although the the evocation of the, I know we talked about this on the on the last podcast. You know the, the descriptive language about the swim in the Thames in in um in under the net. I think it's one one of the the real lyrical high points, one of the aesthetic high points in in their entire um you know fictional career actually. But um, Anne, what what are your thoughts about the the, the development and the use of the Thames as we go through the uh, go through her novels? Oh, I think it's to do with relinquishing oneself. Chris mentioned the contingent. The... What, one of the things Jake has to learn, and all her characters who have dealings with the Thames, what Charles Araby has to do in The Sea, The Sea, is learn that there are things in life you simply cannot control. Um, she says somewhere it's relinquishing oneself from the upright position, going with the flow, understanding that you cannot control all your life. I mean, of course, her moral philosophy was all about attempting to be good, and that moral demand it rests on everyone. But you also have to understand that there are other people, other forces, other influences in the world 
that you simply have to learn to live with and go with the flow. And the Thames is very much, I think, to do with, um, there's always a lot of debris and flotsam and mess and muddle in the Thames when people go swimming in the Thames. She loved to swim and she never minded that. Uh, for most of us, we think, oh, I, I can't do that. It's, it's just too much for me. And part of what we learn from the novels is to accept the contingent, to accept that we are part of a big palpitating universe that we just have to go along with. And I think that's where it fits in with people, her characters who can do that often become, like Jake, better people. Uh, and some of them die when they really can't, uh, like Lady Kitty in The Word Child. Yes, no, I'd, I'd absolutely agree with that. So as we come towards the, the end of our of our time together, I just wonder if you could, and this is going to be really hard, I know, because London appears in so many of the novels. In a minute or less, I'm going to give each of you a minute to sell one of the novels that you, you know, your favourite novel with London in it. And let's see if you all choose a different one. Um, Chris, do you want to go first? Ah, well, that's tricky because I, I'm thinking of novels which are not particularly London novels. I think for me, um, I've always liked An Unofficial Rose, which is not one of the most popular novels, but you've got Emma in her, her strange household up there in the north of, 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 of the central London in Notting Hill. And I think that relationship with Notting Hill there, it's such an affectionate and such a significant one and so different in its sort of raffish air from... The, the, the sort of flower palace down in Kent on the coast there where Randall comes from. I think that's a wonderful, I think that's a wonderful story. And I think that that use of Notting Hill is, is wonderful. Yes, I'd absolutely agree with that. I, I reread that um, a couple of years ago. And I remember just, I, I very rarely do I get the chance to sit down and read for hours on end. But I was on a plane and I just read the whole thing from cover to cover. And I thought this really is an underrated, um, underrated Murdoch novel. James, what would be your choice? Uh, I'm going to go for for two at this point, but a word child, really, because as someone who also loves the London Underground, there's a lot of London Underground in a word child, and um, the the way where where Hillary ends up on the on the underground and things like that. But uh, I think at the moment, my I mean, my favourite books change all the time in terms of of Iris Murdoch, but I am really enjoying uh, rereading Bruno's Dream. It's only the second time that I've read it, and uh, the menace of the river rising. Uh, is something to behold but also even the uh, Danby ends up climbing over the wall at the back of the terrace houses and <laughs> I, I can just picture it so clearly those yeah. London houses where <laughs> those scenes take place and it is <laughs> hilarious and tragic at the same time as the rain comes tumbling down um, so I would say those two at the moment. I, and um, yeah certainly I'd, I would agree with you know word child is perhaps yeah, certainly my top five. I think it's you know superb. Certainly the the, the the scene in the church and the discussion, you know, the discussion about T. S. Eliot. I think that's just a, a wonderful moment. Um, Anne, what about you? Well, I'm going to go for a word child as well. Oh, okay. I'm afraid. I'm I, think, I thought I mean, you'd go for Black Prince. I really did. I well, I I was thinking about that, but I I think I would go because the main symbol in the Black Prince is the post office tower, which is a hugely ambivalent symbol. The main symbol for me in A Word Child is the big moon face of Big Ben. And I think Big Ben is a symbol of everything spiritual about human beings. And it's a symbol of art and particularly the kind of art that Iris Murdoch wants to write because Big Ben looks down with such compassion 
and love on the most appalling character, Hilary Bird, and I think that's what her novels do as well, look down on humanity with huge compassion and love for the most curiously awful people. <laughs> <laughs> no, absolutely, yeah. I, I, don't, I don't know if I, I could even choose one. I, I was thinking about The Green Knight, actually, and I was thinking about the, the, uh, the dog the, the dog travelling, yeah, annex, yeah, yeah. going, um, travelling through London, and that wonderful story about how um, Peter Conradi's dog wrote to wrote to Iris. And do you want to tell the story? It was Cloudy, was yes. the name of uh, Peter's dog, and I think uh, Cloudy wrote to um, Iris to say uh, thank you for putting her in the novel. <laughs> I can't remember really. <laughs> I was, I think, the Green Knight was going to be my next one after Bruno's yeah. Dreaming a Word Child that I was yeah. going to suggest because. Again, Anax's uh, uh, little little section is just is just brilliant, and I think that's that's a book which I need to really go back and reread because it, yeah. it was my it was my favourite for a while. James, yes, yeah, that and needs it, to be reread now. I think, yeah. and it's um and you know, Cloudy writing to Anax and writing to Iris actually changed, you know, edited because it was about the the route through London. I think. Um, yes, you you the, you go into the mind of the dog, don't you? You go into the mind of the dog, yeah. and then yeah. um, character, yes. And the, and you couldn't. And um, Peter, via Cloudy, said that actually you couldn't go that way through London. And Iris actually changed it, didn't she? One of the few edits that she ever did to That's a novel. That's right. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's just. A, I think it's just a wonderful little story. I mean, you know, there there are so many, aren't there? But I was going to say the other one I love, the the, the London novel, is a fairly honourable defeat. Again, that that close close study of that little patch of London around Hollywood Road. Where I spent part of I spent part of my life there, you know, places they're so real when you when you when you know them. Mm, they come to life, don't they? Yeah, yeah. yeah and uh, interesting, you mentioned that, Chris, because it is the 70th anniversary of the publication of a fairly honourable defeat this year, and we will have a special podcast for that coming up in a few months. So I'll, I'll look forward to that. Brilliant. But my but my thanks very much to Anne Rowe and book. Um, Sacred Space Beloved City is available from Cambridge Scholars Press for around £20. You can get it on the website. Um, to Chris Boddington, his Iris Murdoch's People A to Z um, is available um, via Amazon, or you can contact Chris directly for a discount. And details of that will be um, via the podcast link. And my thanks, of course, to James Jeffries as well um, for, um, for Iris Murdoch's info. And it's absolutely can, free. You don't have anything, to pay for it. You don't. You can just click. You can <laughs> put it put it into put it into your browser and and have a look. And I think just you know, it. I just think it's it really hits you, doesn't it? When you go, you mm. click on map and you just zoom out of London or zoom into a particular area and you see how much how much was used. It's just it's an it's an incredible resource, um, as all of these all of these works are incredible resources. If you want to know more about Iris's writing. And Iris is London. For my money, um, she is to the um, post-war British um, British literary scene about London as Dickens was in the 19th century. So my thanks to our three speakers, three guests today. Next time on the podcast, we'll be celebrating the 50th anniversary of the Sovereignty of Good. And joining me on that will be um, Professor Justin Brokes from um, Brown University, who's working on um, the Sovereignty of Good at the moment. Um, Hannah-Marie Altorf from St Mary's University, London and Mark Hopwood from um, Sewanee University of the South in Tennessee in the States. And that'll be coming in a few weeks' time. My thanks to my guests, and my thanks to you for joining us.